Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We're in Acts chapter 15 this morning. As you're turning there, let me ask you to think about seasons of transition. Maybe times in your life when you've actually even used that phrase. This is a season of transition. We're in a season of transition. Maybe when you're in the process of moving homes and packing up or switching jobs. When you go from no children to a child, that's a season of transition. Or even one to two or, or two to twins, that's a transition. Retirement might be a season of transition that you've experienced. Or maybe more recently, just getting married. Or maybe having a child grow up and get married and leave the house. That's a season of transition. Just a few weeks ago, we dropped off our oldest daughter, Autumn, to college in Kentucky. So we're in a season of transition. For 13 years, I was always in public places counting to four. You know, even now that they're teenagers on up, I still sort of keep track in crowd of places, but now I have to count to three. No problem. I, I assured the other kids who are still at home that they'll now get 25% more food, and I'm available for 25% more hugs and kisses and all that. So there's some pluses. Transitions are interesting. Some things feel unsettled. Some questions need to get answered. And the book of Acts is a kind of transition period in God's plan. There's just no way around it. It's a transition from the old era to the new. The old covenant to the new covenant. Even though it falls in the New Testament part of our Bibles, rightly so, it is a time of transition as further realizations like dominoes continue to fall, as questions get asked, as issues arise, and then there's eventually some resolution. Today we come to Acts 15, and what I would propose is the final transition, really, for the book of Acts. It has one more matter to settle. It has to do with the salvation of Gentiles, non-Jews. And you might be thinking, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, or if you've been with us in our study of the book of Acts, hasn't that already been established? Hasn't it already been clearly settled? And indeed it has. In fact, just remind yourself, look back to chapter 13, verse 12. There, the proconsul of uh, the of the island of Cyprus, basically the Roman governor, a Gentile there, he saw what, would hap saw what happened and what he'd heard, and he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He believed. So here you've got a Roman official, full-blooded Gentile, no Jew parts at all, and he believes in Jesus. In chapter 13, verse 47 and following there, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Or chapter 14, verse 1, which we saw last week. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Or chapter 14, verse 21, where there Paul preached the gospel to that city of Derbe, they are a Roman city, and there they had made many disciples, no doubt many Gentiles. Now, it is clear that Paul and Barnabas, as they are seeing these people saved, they are not encouraging circumcision, which was the old way of going about things for Gentiles to come in to the family of God. They were required to be circumcised, at least males, and then to follow the customs of Moses, the Sabbath, the calendar, the food laws, etc. 
We, lost, we left off last Sunday with Paul and Barnabas returning from their Gentile missionary journey. Let's read the last few verses of chapter 14 before we get to the issue that's in chapter 15. Again, it's going to seem like it's all settled. They passed through Pisidia, verse 24, and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed back to Antioch, where, where they started, at least this trip. It's where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they now had fulfilled, mission accomplished. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. It would seem like these matters are quite settled. But then chapter 15, verse 1. Let's read our passage for today and see the problem that needs a solution this last remaining controversy that needs addressing before the story moves on. We'll read the first 35 verses. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, by the way, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, 
It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. A few D words will help us think through this passage, all related to the gospel. There's dissension over the gospel. There is deliberation about the gospel. And then finally, declaration of the gospel. So first, there's dissension over the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, as I said, have been preaching a circumcision-free gospel. They've been preaching an, an only gospel. That is, Christ only, grace only, faith only. But some men came from Jerusalem. It says they came down from Jerusalem. Notice that. Uh, Antioch, actually on a map, is north of Jerusalem quite a ways. But Jerusalem was on a high mountain, so they always spoke of going down from Jerusalem or going up to Jerusalem. They're not thinking geographically or like on a compass. They're thinking uh, elevation-wise. And so they come from Jerusalem with this message. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. This was a mingling of the old way and the new way. The new way is that there is salvation, the forgiveness of sins, in Jesus' blood and righteousness. He died and was raised for the forgiveness of sins. And these people believe that. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. Some of them have a background as Pharisees. And so they maybe have a, an, actual, an extra tendency towards rigidity with their pharisaical background and with their commitments to the traditions. And so the old thing that they continue to believe is that Gentiles can come to God, but they must be circumcised. They must become Jewish first. And they must be Jewish through and through. Now God gave circumcision as a sign of his covenant to Abraham and his offspring back in Genesis 17. It was a good sign. It was a good thing that God did. Painful, sure. Uh, odd for those people in that part of the world at that time. Yes, indeed. That was part of the reason for it. It was God's mark of setting his people apart as different. It also symbolized the need for a removal of the flesh. Not physical flesh, though. The physical outer symbol was portraying, if you will, an inner problem. And so God, as I've said before, began speaking of the need for circumcised hearts, not just circumcised privates. It was also clear throughout all these years that God had instituted this practice, that it didn't actually fix the heart. It didn't actually solve the problem. It was simply external. It wasn't internal. And so there was this anticipation that more is needed. And Paul and Barnabas conclude more has come. And so circumcision isn't needed. Jesus is. He's our, our hope. He's our salvation. He's the fix. He's the solution. 
not just for the forgiveness of sins, but also for the surgery of the human heart that's broken and needs repair. So you've got dissension over the gospel. You've got two gospels going on in one city, in one church. Not that there can be two legitimate gospels. One is, a, one is the gospel, one is a so-called gospel. Salvation can't be both solely on account of faith and also something we do. You can't have an alone or only gospel like Paul and Barnabas were teaching and also a plus gospel that these Pharisees were teaching. They believed in, yes, Jesus, plus circumcision. And so there was no small dissension and debate going on. This is a a fork in the road for the church. Will Antioch be a different church than Jerusalem? Will it have a different gospel? Are there prerequisites for Gentiles? Or no? Two gospels? Two people? Two churches? This is so big that they decide to send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to settle this issue. They go to Jerusalem in part because these teachers came into Antioch from Jerusalem. You've got to find out if this is a, a Jerusalem church thing, whether they were sent from that church, or whether these are rogue teachers. But you also need to go to Jerusalem because that's ground zero. That's headquarters. That's the mother church, and that's where some apostles are. So they head there. And when Paul and Barnabas get there, they're welcomed warmly. They describe what they've been preaching and what God's been doing, verse 4. But the others, believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, verse 5, were insisting it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the whole law of Moses. Not just circumcision but all 613 commands of the Mosaic law, which is the gospel, which is good news. I know it's, I'm talking to a a Christian church 2,000 years after this moment. It's very easy for us to know the answer. Well, of course, it's grace alone. It's not circumcision plus Jesus. Jesus is enough. Yes, but imagine, remember, this was a time of transition. This wasn't in the Old Testament. It didn't deal with this. Yes, it pointed ahead to a day when God would circumcise hearts and God would solve the the heart of the problem. And, And yes, the Old Testament talked about a day when Gentiles would pervasively come to God for salvation and and to worship. That was clear in the Old Testament. But it wasn't exactly clear whether this thing would go away, whether Gentiles would have to physically identify with Jews before they could get to this God. So you can imagine those who were on the other side of Paul and Barnabas. You can imagine their arguments about, we've been doing this for 1,700 years. We didn't come up with circumcision, God did. The law of Moses, it's good, it's not bad. Right? Why wouldn't we tell them to obey the law? Why wouldn't we tell them to, to have this sign that God has given to us? You can imagine at this moment in time why this would have been a difficult issue and certainly an important one. And so they deliberate. Secondly, there's deliberation about the gospel Starting in verse 6, they consider this matter in an assembly or a, a council. Your Bible probably has as a heading, Jerusalem Council. This is just one of those things you got to tuck away if you're a Bible student. This is the Jerusalem Council. It doesn't have a cooler name than that. It's just the Jerusalem Council. And so this was a, 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 maybe the first Christian council, you could say. The first thing that needed to be solved in this multi-church apostolic meeting. There was much debate, verse 7 says. 
And then you have three groups of testimonies. You've got Peter, verses 7 through 11. Then Paul and Barnabas speak up briefly in verse 12. And, and then James, verses 13 to 21. Three different people speak in this meeting of minds. Or another way to break this up would be to break it up topically. Really, it can be broken up like this. There's evidence for the work of God and evidence for the word of God. So these people, Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James, are going to make a case. And they're going to argue according to the evidence from the work of God and the word of God. So first, evidence from the work of God. This is Peter, and then just briefly, Paul and Barnabas later. Peter has a few pieces of evidence he wants them to consider. Starting with what happened back in Acts chapter 10 with a guy named Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a full-blood Gentile. Peter didn't want to go to his house, but God said, go to his house and preach the gospel to him. And before Peter could even preach the sermon, the Holy Spirit fell upon this Gentile house. Something visible happened that, that they knew this was God showing up and God was giving them the Holy Spirit just like it was given to Jews back in Acts chapter 2. So notice what Peter says. Verse 9, God made no distinction between us Jews and them. God cleansed their hearts by faith alone. I added that word alone. I know it's not there, but I think it's clearly implied. He's saying God cleansed them by faith, not circumcision. By faith, not Mosaic law. By faith or trust, not by work alone. Peter reasons with these people, his opponents. He says, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by putting a yoke on these Gentiles? He's reminding them that at that Cornelius event in chapter 10, God did that. God sent Peter. God said to speak the gospel. God sent the Holy Spirit. It's his plan. It's his working. He confirmed it and made it visible and undeniable. So why would you then require Gentiles to do the law and go against God? You are provoking God. It's a, a poke to his chest to put this yoke on them. He reminds them that neither our fathers nor us have been able to bear that yoke of the old Moses law. It didn't save. We, we never batted a thousand with it. No one did. No one fully obeyed the law. The law instead showed us our need for a savior. Paul in Galatians says it's a, a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. It makes us feel helpless and hopeless so that we see Christ as the answer, rightly so. But the law was never the answer. The law can never save. Martin Luther, who knew a thing or two about trying to keep the law before he was converted, he said this, Sin is not canceled by lawful living. For no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals guilt, fills the conscience with terror, and drives men to despair. Much less is sin taken away by our endeavors. The fact is, the more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. That was Peter's conclusion as well. He states it in verse 11. We believe that we Jews will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just as they, Gentiles, will. Circumcision means absolutely nothing. There are no prerequisites to come to God through Jesus. You simply go through Jesus. 
we will be saved just like they were saved. In other words, Jew and Gentile both are sinners. Jew and Gentile both need salvation. And Jesus is able to save Jew and Gentile simply through their believing. Simply through trust or faith. Or verse 7, belief. Do you see here again how God's salvation package must either be from grace alone or plus something you do, but it can't be both. If the Protestant Reformation could be boiled down to a single word, in English it would be this word alone, or in the Latin, sola. From time to time you'll see posters around this building with these five seminal sayings in Latin with some description about them. The five solas of the Reformation. In English, they went like this. Salvation's by grace alone. It is through faith alone. It is in Christ alone. That's revealed in the scriptures alone. And that is all to the glory of God alone. It can't be both an alone gospel and a plus gospel. If you add anything to the alone gospel, it is no gospel at all. Paul and Barnabas agree. In verse 12, they say, like the Holy Spirit falling on those Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So uh, the signs and wonders that we've been, we've been experiencing as we have been in our Gentile mission, these too are the work of God confirming that our message is right. And this is what God is up to. God is saving Gentiles as Gentiles, period. Then there's evidence from the word of God. In steps James. This isn't James the apostle. He was martyred back in chapter 12. This is the brother of Jesus who was converted sometime after Jesus' resurrection. But now has become a prominent figure in the church. This is the James that writes the letter we call James toward the end of our Bibles. Uh, Paul calls him a pillar of the Jerusalem church. And you can see why, because he speaks last. By the way, Roman Catholics would say that Peter was the first pope. But here, Peter speaks first, not last. Peter doesn't by himself convene this first council like a pope normally would. In fact, James is the one who speaks last in this sort of final word way. He seems, if anyone, to be at this point, the leader of the Jerusalem church. But he agrees with Peter. He confirms what Peter says in verse 14. But then he moves to the word of God. And look at the quote here. It's verse 16 and 17 in Acts chapter 15. Now, if you want to write down this reference, it's quoting Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. The wording is a little bit different than most of our Bibles because... Our Bibles are translated from Hebrew when they're dealing with Amos. And then James, when he quotes Amos, he's, he's working from a Greek translation. That's what he quotes. It's called the Septuagint. Anyway, that's why there are some discrepancies between what you would read in Acts 15, which quotes Amos 9, and then what you would actually read in Amos 9 if you turn back there. It doesn't really matter. There's small differences. The meaning is the same. This is what it says. After this, God says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, Amos is a prophet who warns of judgment for eight and a half chapters of his nine chapter book. You have judgment. Judgment, judgment. Judgment is coming upon Israel. God is going to remove them from their land, take them into slavery, and their land will be in ruins. You get eight and a half chapters of that, and then there's a hopeful turn. 
That's exactly what James quotes. After this, after the slavery, after the decimation, God says, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of King David. Now that's either the temple or David's throne, his dynasty. Either one or maybe both. I think what you probably have is a mingling of ideas here. That God, someday, Amos says, will come and there'll be a rebuilt temple connected to the throne of David and this will be the moment at which the nations come to God and bear his name. Now Amos can't possibly be only referring to that time when their slavery was done and they did go home and they did rebuild. It's not just about that because James is quoting it saying, no, this is happening now. Neither can Amos simply be about a millennial kingdom sometime still in the future for us. You might believe that that's in the Bible. Some people think Revelation 20 records that for us. Maybe. But James is saying that Amos 9 is happening right there in their midst in his time. And this is relevant for the Jerusalem council. The Gentiles are coming in because King Jesus, the son of David, and the true temple... Remember, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again, referring to his body. He's the true temple. He is God come. He has come. The king of David has come. The temple has come. God is restoring a people for himself made up of all mankind. And they bear the Lord's name. This language is so, so specific in the Old Testament for Israel, being called by his name. Uh, these, these words, called by his name, bearing his name, assembled, uh, taken from the nations, as it says in verse 14. These are words used of Old Testament Israel, now applied to Israel plus the nations plus Gentiles. And so James's conclusion, verse 19, it's super short. We shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. He agrees with Peter. He's an only guy, not a plus guy. Amos is being fulfilled. God is doing this. The nations are coming in as his people, as nations, as Gentiles. They don't have to change to be something else before they can come in. And so the false teachers who had troubled these new Gentile converts, who had put a yoke on these Gentile converts, to them, James says, no, no yoke, no trouble, no plus sign. However, he then adds a plus sign. Or so it seemed. Did you notice that? Did verse 20 stand out to you? Did it make you scratch your head at all? Here's where it gets a little confusing. He recommends four caveats to his grace-only message. We should write to them to abstain from four things. Things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. What's going on here? After all this grace talk, after all this faith talk, just believe. Then he gives them four things to make sure they don't do. He gives them four laws, commandments. Doesn't say recommendations. And by the way, we already read it. We know the whole council, even with the church, is going to agree with James's recommendation without any modification. So this isn't legalist James running off with four commands that the rest of the church is going to veto. No, they agree with it. 
But why are they here? Why would James recommend this? Why would the church agree with it? Why are Gentiles commanded to abstain from these four things? Well, if you read the scholars on the book of Acts, they have a variety of different interpretations. I find none of them very persuasive except one. I'm fairly convinced that these four things were uniquely tied to pagan idolatry. In the Roman world, almost every city had, had an, an idol temple. And in these temples, sacrifices to the Roman gods were made, sex was had, and food was eaten. There were temple prostitutes, there were orgies, and there were mutilated animals sacrificed to these empty gods. These things just went together in a package deal in a way that we really don't relate to. This isn't a thing in our day, but it was a thing back then. We forget because the Bible is written in some ways so timelessly. We forget that some things in the Bible were really specific and needed for a time, for a people, and in this case, for Gentiles in the first century living in a Roman world who would have had a very long history with all this pagan idolatry. There are passages like Revelation 2 which put together things like sexual immorality, food, and idolatry. Revelation 2 verse 20 talks about those who practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. You see, it's one big thing. And it's not just in Revelation 2. This is elsewhere where these things apparently went together in some way that we're not familiar with in our culture, thankfully. They all went together and they all should be left behind for Christians who have come to Jesus freely for grace. And I realize that I just spoke words that are intention. These things should be left behind for those who freely come to Jesus for grace. We enter into God's family solely by grace, simply by believing. But once we're in, there are family rules. My kids do not stay in my good graces by their obedience. I don't keep feeding them because they obey. They're my kids. They're in my family by grace. They get to live like they're in this family by grace. But we do have some family rules, and sometimes we speak like that. Hey, we're, we're Kellys. We, we don't do that. The same New Testament that spells out for us God's lavished, free grace is the same New Testament that also, at times, tell, tells Christians things they should do and things they shouldn't do. And this is one of those places. Ephesians 2 is maybe the most important passage on this. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not your own doing, lest any man should boast. It's all of grace. But verse 10, we are his workmanship, his, his creation, his poem, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You're not saved by good works. It's all of grace. But once you're saved, he's making something out of you, and it involves good works. In Titus 2, we talk about Ways in which we adorn the gospel. There are certain behaviors that are adorned with grace. Certain things that are fitting with the gospel. To become a Christian, you don't need to become Jewish. But to become a Christian, you can't completely stay who you are and what you have been doing. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old passes away. Behold, all things are becoming new. To turn to God is to turn from some things. We call that repentance. We turn to God in faith. It means there are certain things we've given up on. We turn to God and we turn our back on old ways of thinking about salvation. Ways we were trusting in something for hope. We turn to God. We turn from idols. That's the language of 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul praises God how the Thessalonians had turned from idols to the living God. Or here's how it might look. Look at, look at Acts 19. Just a few pages later. Acts 19. Here's an example of what repentance and conversion might look like if you're a magician. Not a, not a David Copperfield magician, like a satanic magician. Acts 19, verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. These are former magicians who are out of work and have given up their magic books at great cost. What else can you do? I mean, now if Jesus is Lord, this magic stuff's the wrong side. That's the wrong team. You can't, you can't do that. It doesn't fit with the Christian worldview. And so we should all ask ourselves, especially those of us who came to Christ as an adult, what did you leave behind? What idols did you turn from when you turned to God? What were you once trusting in and you had to forsake and renounce in order to trust Christ alone? Alone cuts both ways, doesn't it? Now thirdly, there's the declaration of the gospel. The declaration. Now if you're taking notes, you could add the word decision to this third point. Because really, a decision is made and it includes the need for a declaration. The decision, verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and now even with the whole church. They're involved. They've concluded the matter, but now it has to be communicated to the broader church. And we can cruise through this. I fully intended to just to space it out just like this, and we're not behind schedule. Look, look how fast this gets covered. You see in verse 22, they choose two men, Judas and Silas, from the Jerusalem church to go with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with the letter. That's the conclusion, the letter. And the letter is recorded for us in verses 23 to 29. And really, there are no surprises in it. It's just what James recommended. They renounce the false teachers who've been troubling them and confusing them. They clarify the true gospel, the only gospel, the alone gospel. And then they also remind these Gentile Christians of what they probably already know. That to be a Gentile Christian means you're no longer a wild pagan who goes to the idol temple to get drunk and have orgies and eat meat as part of a ceremony of sacrifices that are made to idols. It kind of goes without saying. This is really clear stuff, and yet it was so much a part of this Roman pagan culture, it just had to be stated. So when you come to Christ, that changes. Don't do that anymore. Your allegiance changes. It doesn't really have much to do, in this case, I don't think, with how much blood is in your meat, or whether your meat once was sacrificed to an idol, but now it's at the marketplace. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. You can read that on your own. And he says, if you get it, you get it at the market and you take it home, it's fine. 
It's just meat. Who cares what its past was? But this is different. This is in an idol temple as part of pagan worship, and that is no good for Christians, needless to say. The messengers are sent off in verse 30. See that? And then verse 31, we come to that. And when they had read it, these Gentile Christians in Antioch, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced. Imagine being one of these grown men, Gentile Christian, uncircumcised, knowing Paul and Barnabas are down in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a, a decision going to be made. A couple weeks later, they're going to come back. They're either going to come back with a smile or a knife. Oh, good. It's a smile. Okay, good. They rejoiced and they were encouraged with this good news. No surprise. Well, of course, they're even more happy about the gospel itself, not just the lack of circumcision. It's good news that Jesus has done it all and that there are no strings attached and that there's nothing you can do and nothing he wants you to do to clean yourself up before you come to him. You just must come needy. Or you don't come at all. According to Isaiah 55, that's the only requirement. All you who are thirsty, come by my wine and my milk without money and without price. You must come thirsty and you must come poor. If you think you have riches and you try to offer them, no deal. But if you come broken, hungry, and poor, he'll give you bread and wine and milk. And you will be saved and you will be satisfied. In Luke 5, Jesus said he didn't come to call righteous people to repentance. Not that there are any righteous people. We're all sinners. But some people think that they're righteous. And so repentance doesn't make any sense to them. It's like a, a well person saying, hey, EMS is here. I'm fine. What are you talking about? Jesus came for the sick. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. He calls them to come and just come. And he calls them to repent, to turn from something, whatever it is they've been trusting in and identifying with. B.B. Warfield said, There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is as true after we've believed. It will be true as long as we live. It is always by his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. So I ask you, whether you're a Christian already or not, are you resting in this? Christ his blood, his righteousness alone? Are you willing to come to him with nothing to offer but believing he can fill up all your desires and hopes? It is possible, Christian, to be saved, truly saved, but get inconsistent with our thinking and start to trust our own work in a wrong and sinful way. What are you trusting in? Is there a plus in your equation before God? I don't mean do you ever do work for the Lord? Do you ever try to obey? Do you want to please him? No, no, no. That's the outworking of a transformed, grace-filled life. That's normal Christianity, yes and amen. But what are you trusting in? Is it Jesus plus prayer? Jesus 
plus Bible reading? Have you come to think or feel like, yeah, maybe forgiveness is free, but his love for me sure isn't? Have you begun to trust in faith? To sort of mark your spiritual maturity by how much you trust? Or to despair because you feel like you don't trust enough? Do do you know we do not trust in faith when we talk about faith alone? It's not by faith that we're saved. It's through faith. It's by grace in Christ received through faith. Faith is simply trusting in Christ. If faith is looking at faith, it's a black hole of emptiness where you, where you fail and try harder and fail and try harder and fail. But if your eyes are on Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his righteousness is perfect so you can look to him take one good look at yourself to know yourself a sinner but then take a thousand looks at christ as your righteousness and if this morning you doubt you look to christ And if this morning you hear this gospel presented again and it's moved your heart so little You're dry right now. You remember days of hearing the gospel preached and you'd weep with thankfulness and joy. Maybe you're tempted right now to try to muster that up as some sort of badge, some sort of work that might prove to God you're worth it. If this morning you hear this gloriously free gospel of God's love and Christ's sacrifice for you, and your heart moves so very little that you're concerned. Cling to Christ. Once again, cling to Christ. He's sufficient for our weak faith. He's sufficient for our stubborn affections. He's better. He paid the debt of our thanklessness. We never thank him enough. We never could praise him enough. You never feel like the gospel is awed properly in your heart because it never fully is. He's enough. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for your righteousness for us. We thank you that we could do nothing and that you have done everything. It's grace that taught our hearts to fear. You save from wrath and you make us pure. We thank you for a gospel that not only forgives but also transforms. Would you transform us more, Lord? Show yourself mighty and glorious in our minds in a way that makes us, oh, just totally disinterested with sin. Lord, we pray for those in our midst who are quite too comfortable with sin that is so blatantly of the world and they know it's not consistent with your word and not consistent with grace. Drive it away. Give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us a hunger and thirst for Christ, our Savior. We pray in his strong and saving name. Amen.